the whole world is trying to understand love. In every generation, our books, our movies, our songs, and even our peers try to shape our opinions with competing and often contradicting ideals. Left in their shadows are confused and misguided people who are desperately searching for more. More truth, more reality, more power. The Church of Jesus Christ offers a distinct definition, the alternative to the alternatives, the truth over the lies, the one who is love himself, God. Love is ours because we are His. Once saved by His unconditional love, He then empowers us to live it out in gospel-centered relationships. So here we are, and here we stand, the people of God, reclaiming love. We were back together and looking at reclaiming love, and a few weeks ago we started with this series looking at the intertrinitarian love. This is the love that God has always possessed. God is eternal, and we are not, so we have a birth date, we have an end date, we have a dash. Um, God has just always been. And so part of him always being, he has always loved. And this love has been shared together with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And they had this perfect triune love together. And so when God created the world, it wasn't that he needed to create someone or something to give him love back because he found himself lacking. No, God was just fine. It was by his love that he created. And to bring us into a right relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is only through his grace and his mercy. And so the second week we came together, we saw that uh, in reclaiming love, we must understand God's redemptive love. This is, as scripture tells us, God loving us first. And what does that mean that God loves us first? If you would really meditate on that and think about that, it's really going to apply to what we look at today in our marriages as well. It's that God loved us far before we ever loved him. In fact, time-wise, he loved us when there was no time in eternity. So there wasn't a moment where God looked at you and saw your behavior and thought, good job, man, I'm going to love you now because of the things that you have accomplished. No, it's never based on what we do. It's based on his love alone. And that is his redemptive love towards us. And to that I say amen, because if it were based on our works or anything that we could do to ever love God first, we never would. And if you don't believe that, just do um, a search through the Bible, and it will confirm that statement. You would never love God unless God loved you first. This is the good news of the gospel. And so today, we're going to take what we've been talking about with redemptive love, and we're going to look at redemptive love displayed in marriage. Now, you may be married today, and your marriage may be awesome. Man, you keep rocking on, okay? To God be the glory. But you may be here today, and your marriage is struggling, and you got the happy face on, and everything looks good. Y'all got the matching colors, all right? You, You look good, everybody thinks your marriage is great, and behind closed doors, your marriage is a wreck, I'm going to encourage you right now, don't give up. Don't stop loving each other. You say, that's easy for you to say, and you know what? Here's what I don't want today. As a pastor, we're here to counsel. We're here to love and encourage you. But I don't want you to go ahead and build up your defense case of why your marriage is struggling right now. 
I don't want you to do that. That is not, that is not the motive of this message today, okay? Today, you may be divorced, and you may feel like you walk around with a D on your shirt, and everybody knows it, and everybody sees it, and they think differently of you. That is not the motive today. It's not today to put you down because you've been divorced before, although divorce is a major problem in our world today. Yes, it is. Uh, You may be single. You may want to be married, and you're going, great, we're talking about marriage today. Way to go. Yeah, I'm going to check out right now. No, don't check out. Check back in because marriage is important. It's, It's God's idea. So we're talking about something that's rather godly, and we're not going to skip over it. And we're not going to take an easy approach. Today, I'm not going to give you five or six, seven, eight, nine, ten steps of how you can have a better marriage of do's and don'ts. That's not going to work. It's not going to work. Now, I don't think those lists are bad. I think there's some good lists that we can hand out, and there's some things we've received before in our marriage conference a couple weeks ago. If you were here at that marriage conference, just put your hand up, okay? You were here. It was a great time together. We laughed together. Um, we received good encouragement from God's word. It's, it's been very beneficial for the marriages at Perimeter Road Baptist Church. But today, your application is going to come from understanding God's redemptive love carried out towards you and then how that is to be carried out in marriage, okay? So that when we go through a list of do's and don'ts, you can't look to your spouse beside you and say, uh-huh, you hear that? Yeah, you need to work on that, all right? All of us need to work on redemptive love because it's not natural for us. It's not easy for us. We were not born with it. No, we've been reborn into it. And so we need this work. So that's what we're looking at today. Before we get there, hey, I got to offer some congratulations to Leonardo DiCaprio. Yes. Way to go, Leo. All right. Six-time nominated, I think it was six-time nominated, and finally he wins an Oscar the other night. I mean, and, and I just had a moment, okay, because I didn't watch all the Oscars because it was just, it goes on too late. All right, I'm just going to be honest. You start having kids, and man, it's like, all right, we're going to bed. All right, and so uh, my wife woke up the next morning, I mean, and she, did, she said, did Leo win? I said, I, I think so. I think he won. I mean, she was really excited, and so we looked it up. He won, and we rejoiced. Um, but I think back uh, when he was on the growing pains, Man, that was his early days, and then What's Eating Gilbert Grape? I mean, that was a great movie. He should have won an Oscar for that, and, he, and that wasn't even supposed to be a major role. Uh, but then Titanic, all ah, right. I mean, I thought as a high schooler, he should have won an Oscar for that. I mean, it's pretty good. Rose, Rose, right? No, he didn't win. Um, and then uh, Catch Me If You Can. I mean, I thought that was a pretty clever movie. It was based on a true story, uh, but that wasn't quite enough. And then The Great Gatsby. I mean, that was pretty entertaining, I will say that. But it was his last movie, which I haven't seen, and maybe you've seen it, um, The Revenant. Uh, He had this amazing beard. It just grew it out. He looked like Brian Wilson. And then now, I must say this. Yesterday, I sent a call out to all the men for men's breakfast and those of you who received it. And and, and I said, man, tomorrow, Brian Wilson's speaking. You get to see his beard. It's going to be nice and full. And he shows up, and he shaved his beard. Where is he? He looks like a college student, man. But anyway, so, but Leo, I think Leo shaved his beard too. Um, But, you know, but he won an Oscar and congratulations to him. But this is what he said in his speech. And I'm always interested. Matthew McConaughey, a couple years ago, he gave his speech and we talked about that. And and I thought, you know, we talk about Leo's speech for a second. He says this um, in his thank you speech. It's pretty brief, but he said, making the revenant, was about man's relationship with the natural world. 
Climate change is real. It is happening right now. I don't know if you knew there's a deal with climate change going on. Uh, but he says, climate change is real. It is happening right now. The most urgent threat facing our entire species. And you can imagine that the place erupted with, with clapping. Yeah, climate change. Most urgent threat facing our entire species. Now, congratulations, Leo. I mean, well done. I mean, to be nominated that many times and then finally win, that's great. But I think he's way off on his statement here. Here's why. Because climate change or no climate change, whether you believe in climate change or not, let me just go ahead and tell you the earth is decaying, okay? It's dying. You want want to know when our climate started changing? The flood, all right? Imagine the earth being covered with water. I think earth's going to be a little bit different when the waters subside. In fact, yeah, people were living 900 years of age, and now they're living under 120. Yeah, there was a climate change that happened then, and it's continuing to decline. And we make a big issue about climate change, whatever, but that is not the urgent threat that we face as an entire species. No, the the urgent threat facing our entire species is not climate change. The most urgent threat is the breakdown in the moral immune system of human society. That is the most urgent threat. And this is due to sinful depravity of man. It's sin leading to death. That is the most urgent threat right now. So when you go talk to somebody and say, hey, you know this week, you know what the most urgent threat is to all of us? And they say climate change. Say, no, it's your sin. It's your sin. It's my sin. It's the sinful depravity of man. Our moral immune system is breaking down. And it's getting worse. So that's what happens with an immune system. Once it is weakened, it's prone to more sickness and disease and infection and destruction. And that's our culture. That's the U.S. of A., man, is sick, morally sick. A terrible immune system that's been breaking down. And for our subject today of marriage, if you just look back 100 years, you can just see how sick man is. And when I say man, I'm including all of us in that statement. At the turn of the 20th century, the landscape looked a lot different than the turn of the 21st century. In fact, there was no such thing as no-fault divorce in the 20th century, at the beginning of the 20th century. There was no such thing as cohabitation with male and female living together before marriage. Same-sex marriage? No way, man. In fact, it was against the law to engage in sexual activity, one man and one man, one woman, one woman. And now, the offensive terminology of male and female. Did you know that's offensive to people today? People get offended when you call somebody a male or a female. In fact, they're coming up with a new term. They'll just call it Z, because they don't really know what to call it. And so now it's even offensive that somebody who is a man, who wants to be a woman, cannot go to a woman's bathroom. Okay? We shake our heads and go, that's crazy. This was nowhere on the scene 100 years ago. Nowhere on the scene. And how quickly things have changed. And we say, what's happened What's happened? Well, when your immune system gets attacked and it's weakened, 
it opens itself to more and more destruction. But you know what? What I really want to look at is marriage. Because marriage is, in a sense, under attack. But here's what's happening. People aren't really talking about marriage anymore. I mean, because once you redefine what marriage is, and we have, U.S. Supreme Court decided that marriage would no longer be between a man and a woman, but could be between a man and a man, woman and a woman. What's coming next is going to be between multiple men and women together. And then what's going to come next, and you think I'm being silly on this, but I'm not kidding you, it's going to be a man who is infatuated with his dog, and all of a sudden, boom, they're hitched in. Here's the wedding announcement, okay? That's what happens when you change marriage. And so all of a sudden, marriage has no weight. It has no value, the world looks to marriage and goes, what's, what's so important about marriage? Let's just live together. Who needs marriage anyway? And that's what's going to happen. That's what's next. So how does the church respond to this? Now, you can shake your head. You can think I'm being silly. or You can think I'm just being ultra conservative. But I like to consider myself biblical and seeing that God defines marriage. It's God's idea but yet, we cannot look to the world and blame them. Where do we start? What do we do? Well, here's what we do, church. First, we begin by taking responsibility for why marriage is the way it is today in our society. Because the church has not looked very different than the world when it comes to marriage. Our values and standards for what marriage is has not been upheld any further than the world's standards. In fact, I think we have a, a, a graph, if you'll show that. Here we go. So just pretend that at the start line here, the church and the world, we're looking in the 20th century. And when the church held its standards, the world had its standards, but then as time went along in the 20th century, both were on a decline, as you can see. I mean, the things that we as the church do and accept as normal today, 100 years ago, would not have been accepted in that way. But see, here's what happens. The church, instead of upholding a standard of the gospel, started looking to the world and keeping her eye on the world. And as the world continued in steep decline, which you can expect in a culture that is not centered on the gospel, you can expect this. You can expect moral decline. This is not shocking. It has happened through all empires. And so what happens as the world begins to decline, so does the church till you get to a certain point that where 50 or 60 years ago, what was the world's standards for righteousness, the church has found herself even steeping below that. That's the problem with keeping your eyes on the world and us not separating ourselves from the ways of the world. So the first thing when we're looking at marriage and what do we do with this marriage crisis? One, we have to take responsibility. We can't blame any party, Republican or Democratic Party, any candidate or past president. They're not to blame. No, church, we must take responsibility where we have failed to uphold a high view of the gospel and when it comes to our marriages. I mean, the Supreme Court is the supreme over this land, but the Supreme Court is not supreme over God, is it? And the only reason that the Supreme Court is supreme at all is because God in his supremacy has allowed them to be supreme. So God is to be supreme over our hearts, not the Supreme Court over our hearts. So you may be discouraged, you may be frightened, you may just want to give up, 
because of what's happening around you. And I'm saying, don't give up. Don't fall into this. You should expect moral decline. You should expect this. This is the world that we live in. It is decaying. It is falling apart. But we, as the church, have been made new. And our marriages should reflect this. So we as the church are to display before the world what marriage really is. Because I'm telling you, our world does not know what marriage really is. Kids being brought up and in the public school system especially, they're being told that marriage is all types of things. And so it is our job, our responsibility to display marriage. But we cannot go about it as if it's a duty, although it is an obligation. And we see that in 1 John chapter 3. If you want to turn to 1 John, uh, it's in the back of the Bible there. Uh, This will be really our central text today. And then we're going to hop over to Hosea in just a little bit. We're in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. You see, we have an obligation, husbands, to love our wives. And wives, we have an obligation to love our husbands. We see this in Scripture as it begins with this brotherly love towards one another. But let us first start with how we even know love. We use that word, but we're talking about an agape love that even in the first century when they spoke of agape love, it was strange. It wasn't a common term for love that they used. So let's look at love. By this we know love. How do we know love? I want to know love. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Wow, that's how we know love, that Christ laid down his life for us. It's a dying, meaning that we die to ourselves and we love one another. So what he's gonna say is that, hey, if you love God, if you say you love God, you ought to love the brothers. If you don't love the brothers, then the truth is you don't love God. You can say whatever you want to, but it's seen in how you act. And so, we ought to love or lay down our lives for the brothers. So, how do we know what love is? That he laid down his life for us. His life, the righteous, laid down for us, the unrighteous. He was righteous, we're unrighteous. If the righteous did not lay down his life for the unrighteous, there is no way that we would ever know love and we would never have life. We would be dead in our sins We would go before a holy and just God. We'd be condemned to hell, which is where we should deserve, where we should go, and that would be our eternal life. But yet there is hope in the gospel that the righteous lay down his life for the unrighteous, meaning that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This word ought is ophileo. Ophileo. Okay? Ophileo. Now, how about you say that with me? You want to speak some Greek today? Here we go. Ready? Ophileo. There you go. Speaking Greek. It's amazing. Here it is. It means obligated. That word ought means obligated. So if we look back at it, we are obligated to lay down our lives for the brothers. So the church is much, something much greater than what preferences you have when you walk into this building. It is a group of people who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. He is the head because none of us could be the head of the body. And we're all different parts of the body, and we lay down our lives for one another. We sacrifice for one another. 
This is the church. We are obligated, but not only obligated to lay down our lives for one another as the church, but also in marriage. Ephesians, Ephesians 5.28. In the same way, husbands should, that word is ophileo, meaning obligated. In the same way, husbands are obligated to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So husbands in the room, you are obligated to love your wife as your own body, meaning the way that you treat yourself and how you want to be treated, that's how you love your wife. You're obligated. It's not a choice. You're obligated. In 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him ought, o philo, to walk in the same way in which he walked. So if we abide in Christ, we ought to walk like Christ. We are obligated to walk like Christ. Some people say they're a Christian. I say, man, are you a Christian? You following Christ? Yeah, things are just going rough right now. Man, I'm just kind of doing my own thing. The man, you may not be a Christian. No, man, I'm once saved, always saved. Well, you need to check that because you're once saved, always following. You need to be following. You have an obligation to walk in the same way in which he walked. We see this in 1 John 4, 11, so you may want to flip the page there, or maybe you're on it already. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There it is, ought, an obligation to love one another. You say, well, I don't like people. (laughs) It doesn't matter. You're obligated to love them. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So let me ask this question, looking at verse 11, so that we'll know who the audience is and there's no doubt, who are the beloved? Who are the beloved? Verse 11, beloved. Who is that? These are those who are loved by God and called according to his purpose. Just so you'll know that, and I'm not making this up, Romans 1, 7, as Paul writes, to all those in Rome who were loved, also the same word there, beloved by God and called to be saints. The saints, the church, that is the beloved. As Paul is writing in in Colossians chapter 3, starting in in the first uh, verse there, he's speaking to those who have been raised in Christ. And then in verse 12, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. They're his chosen possession. They're his loved ones. He's brought them to himself. He owns them. They're his beloved. And if you are his beloved, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are looking to them, looking to him, there is an obligation to love one another. In verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So love is perfected in us. You say, I have a hard time loving. Well, love can be perfected in you through Christ. You want to learn another Greek word? Here it is, teoel. Teoel means to bring to completion, to accomplish, to finish. It is accomplishing a work in us. That's what his love is doing inside of us, being complete in us. So we're to love one another. The sad thing is, 
is when you set out to love other people and you neglect to love your spouse. That's sad. It happens far too often. We think of how can we love somebody else, and yet there's your spouse, and you're not asking, how can I love my spouse more? Because I'm obligated to love my spouse. You've entered into a covenant relationship with your spouse. And so at this point, you know, we can quickly turn inward and we can start looking at our circumstances. And you can say, Brian, you don't understand what's going on in the home. You don't understand what I'm dealing with right now. And you're asking me to love my spouse. It's awfully hard. Of course it's awfully hard. Yeah, it's difficult. You think I'm easy to love? No. And yet my wife is obligated to love me. Congratulations, honey. All right? As beautiful as my wife is, as near perfect as my wife is, it can be hard to love as I should love her at times. So let's just put that on hold, all of our excuses and things that have happened of why we find it so hard to love. And I'm not being unsympathetic at that moment, trust me. But put that on hold and let's turn to the book of Hosea. Now, Hosea is in the Old Testament. He's a minor prophet, so you're going to go past Proverbs, and you're going to keep going there in the Old Testament to your right. And I understand that you may not have a lot of quiet times in the old book of Hosea, all right? Unless you're one of those ladies who's read Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers. And even at that point, you probably have more quiet times in the book of Francine Rivers than you did in the actual book of Hosea. But who's calling who out, okay? So turn to page 751 if you have a pew Bible. For most of you who may have an ESV, that may be the page for you, but the book of Hosea. And the reason why we're turning here is because I want to emphasize something, is that when we're talking about marriage, we're talking about a covenant made. And for you young people, I want to talk about a covenant, what a covenant means, because um, I used to follow, I don't follow it as much anymore, so let me see all your teenage eyes real quick, okay? All right, so um, I used to follow football, okay, recruiting, okay, and I used to get mad when 17-year-olds would decommit from the school I was rooting for, and they'd go to another one, and I remembered they're just 17 years old, okay? But here's, here's today, here's what commitment means to you. Commitment is, um, I'm committed to this school right now, and I'm 100% committed. I'm not going to back away from that. Even some kids say they're 200% committed. And they say, I'm committed. And then a better offer comes up, and guess what happens? No longer are they committed. They go commit somewhere else to another school. What does the word commitment mean? It means absolutely nothing. It's only that you will be committed to something. You will embrace something until something else better comes along. Young ones, listen, that is not how marriage works. That's not how marriage works. That may be how some of your little relationships and some of your friends who have boyfriends and girlfriends, because I know y'all don't really get into that because you don't got time for that, right? And if I got time for that, you're studying. John, what's up, man? Come on. All right, so here's the deal. It's just not leaving one for something else that's better. But sadly, before your young eyes, that's how you've seen our culture act. I want to let you know that marriage is a covenant, that when you enter into it, you hold it until death. That's a covenant. But yet we're going to look at a much greater covenant, and that's the covenant that God has made with the church. So that's where we're going. That's why we're turning to the book of Hosea. And so everybody else, I hope you're there in Hosea too, okay? Just want to take that moment. Hey, we're buds, right? Just want to talk to the kids here. All right, so here it is. Now let's... We're looking at a covenant, not a contract. A contract is uh, one, two, three, and four. You break the contract, we break the marriage. 
put that aside. Aren't you glad that that's not how salvation works? Hey, you can get, you can get mad at me. That's, I'm cool with that, actually, all right? Because, look, when we're talking about marriage, this is God's idea. And I'm not standing up here for you as a proud man. I stand up here for you as a humble man, understanding that every day I'm committed to a covenant marriage. But the motivation comes from my covenant relationship with Jesus. And I'm thankful that it's not contractual, that it's not based on some contract, that if I break point one A to B, whatever it may be, that Jesus says, I'm out, Brian. I'm tired of you doing this. I'm done. No, he enters into a covenant. And he takes all the times that we abuse his name, that we turn our backs on him, and he still loves us. He still loves us. And so that's why we turn to the book of Hosea here, because we're focusing in on a covenant which displays God's redemptive love for the world to see. The application comes when we understand better what a covenant is. So Hosea, he was a prophet, prophesied for about 30 or 40 years. He began uh, under the reign of King Jeroboam II in the north and continued through the reign of King Hezekiah in Judah. Here's what was happening, idolatry. The people of Israel, the people of Judah were not behaving. They were not honoring God. They were worshiping false idols, false gods. In fact, they were intermingling with false gods, and they were taking a little bit of this and a little bit of this, and they were intermingling with worship to Yahweh, which did not make him happy. But we understand that God made them his people, not because of anything in them, but because he upheld his promise in Abraham. Understand this. God chose Israel. He chose them. They were not a people who chose him. He chose them. Why did God choose Israel? Well, we find this out in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. Once again, we look to Scripture when we understand this of why he chose them. Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So get this. There are a lot of people on the face of the earth. He didn't choose all of them. He chose a nation for himself, that being Israel. Why, in verse 7, did he choose them? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. He said, I didn't choose you because you were a great people. I didn't choose you because you were strong, because you were bold, and I thought that if I just showed some love to you, that you'd be attracted towards me, and that this would just be love at first sight, and then it was going to work out from here on. No, he chose them, not based on anything of them. Verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you, and is keeping the oath that he swore to your father's that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So why did God choose Israel? Because he loved them. That's why he chose them. That's not my idea. That's God's plan. He chose them because he loved them. There were other peoples on the earth. He did not choose them. He chose Israel. And what did he do? He entered into this covenant relationship with them based on a promise that he made with Abraham. He said, you'll be the father of many nations as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the shore. 
And here's what he did. He led them out of Egypt after 400 years of captivity. He led them through the wilderness, and eventually he brought them into Canaan. And here's what Joshua reminded the people. He reminded them of something. Because God said that when you go into Canaan, you're going to see all these established cities. They're going to have their own gods. Don't embrace them as your own because you did none of that. So Joshua then reminds them, and maybe this is very familiar to you. Maybe you have this up in your house. But in Joshua 24, starting around verse 15, he says, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Who's his audience? He's talking to a generation of people who saw their parents die in the wilderness because they disobeyed God again and again and again and again. They didn't trust him. You studied, some of you studied that this morning in community group. Some of you will study that tonight in community group. He said, okay, you saw what happened to your parents. They didn't trust God. So Joshua was saying, for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. And then verse 16, then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve our other gods, for it is the Lord our God. Listen to what they say. It is the Lord our God who has brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that he went, that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. The Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. So here they are saying, he's our provision. He's done all of this for us. So what should we expect from that point forward? Faithfulness? No, because they had wicked hearts. For those who did not look forward to the Messiah and trust in God's provision, they would turn away. And it would not take long for them to turn to worthless idols. This people of God. His because he loved them. Think about they. So we, we get caught up on the wrong thing sometimes. He loved them. You would expect them just to love him back. To love God back naturally. And they didn't. They didn't love him. And so, let's look back here in Hosea. And God is speaking through Hosea to his people. Because the problem is syncretism. What's happening is they're taking false gods and they're intermingling with their worship to Yahweh. It's called syncretism. Now imagine this. If I were to go home today and my wife's waiting for me at the house and our two boys and I walk through the door and I have another lady with me. And I say, hey, honey, meet my second honey. She's going to come in. She's going to live with us. So we got room, so I'm just going to bring her in. The next day, well, really, the next day I'd be out on the street. No, but the next day, I, I, the next day I bring in another one. Hey, this is honey number three. And then the next day, hey, this is honey number four. And then the next day, this is honey number five. And now I got five sweet honeys there at the house. Okay? That ain't going to work. It's not going to work. But that was Israel. That's what they did with these false gods. And when God saw their false worship, he's not going, oh, well, at least they have some type of religion. That's good. That's good for you. Way to go. He's saying, who's that? Who's that? And who's that? I'm not pleased that you have some type of religion. Are you kidding me? I'm your God. These things that you're worshiping, 
Let me let you know, they don't even exist, Israel. And yet you're worshiping them over me. And this was the problem. And so, he had a much greater purpose for them. He gave them land. He made them a people. He pursued them. They pursued other lovers. That's what they did. And so, with this, God sends Hosea. Now, the nation of Israel is in spiritual decline. And he tells Hosea, Hosea, I want you to marry a wife of whoredom. That's what I want you to do. Marry a wife of whoredom. Do you think that when Hosea heard that immediately, he was like, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, right? You get that if you were in youth group in the 90s. (laughs) You think that's how Hosea responded? Well, we see that he agrees. But what man wants to be told, go pick out a wife for yourself who's going to be a harlot? She's going to cheat on you, not with one, not with two, not with three men. She's going to be sold for sexual pleasure. Yeah, go marry her. Go marry her. You know, when I was in high school, speaking of youth group back in the 90s, my student pastor said, Brian, you need some standards for your future spouse. I said, okay, all right, I'll I'll do that. So me and my buddy Chad, Chad came to preach earlier last year and Many of you know Chad, and so Chad and I, we were up there in his room, and we, he had his list, I had my list, and we were comparing notes, and we said, okay, we, we need a wife. She's got to love the Lord, have daily quiet times, all right? She's got to have a good prayer life. She's got to be faithful to the church, and, you know, she's, she's got to keep herself pure because we're, we're, we're striving to keep ourselves pure, all right? And, so, and, and then all of a sudden, we get down lower in the list, and we start getting really particular on things that aren't so much about being godly, and it was like, uh, she needs to have blonde hair, Blue eyes, need to be between 5'8", five, 5'10", five, okay? She's got to have a pretty smile, okay? All these things. She's got to be athletic or whatever it may be. And we had all these things, and that was looking similar on our list. And Chad's sister comes into the room, and she says, what are you twerps doing? And I said, well, we're, we're making our standards list. And she said, well, let me see that. And she read through it. She said, good, good. She gets to the middle. She says, should I throw up now? I mean, this is gross. And, you know, for us, we're thinking, this is good. What's wrong with this? This is what we expect. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, I'm, I praise God that he gave me a brown-haired, brown-eyed girl, all right? You know, so for all you blonde-haired, blue-eyes, you know, he gave you somebody to marry. Yeah, that's great. But for, for me, I am thankful. I praise God. That country song, I thank God for unanswered prayer, although I believe he answered my prayers when he said no. I look back, I'm grateful for whom God has given me. But here's the deal. God doesn't say to Hosea, won't you create a standards list, and I'll honor that. No. He says, I want you to go get a woman who's going to cheat on you and hurt you and make a mockery of your name. This is not going to be an ideal marriage, Hosea. No, you can look at your other friends and see their marriages. Your marriage isn't going to be like that. And you say, I wouldn't do that. But you know who's telling him to do this? God. God's telling him to do this. Why would God tell him to do this? Because Hosea was a prophet, and he was going to pronounce judgment to come, and he was going to put Hosea in the same position that he's in. 
He says, that that you feel inside when she's disobedient and when she goes away from you and takes other lovers and you want to kill her? That's what I want you to feel, Hosea. That's what I want you to feel before you pronounce judgment on Israel. You say, man, the pastor's going crazy. No, that's, you see that. There were times when God was ready to wipe Israel off the map due to their unfaithfulness. He says, Hosea, you go marry a wife. You stay committed to her. Don't you run out on her. You stay committed to her. And not only that, Hosea, but I'm going to give you children of whoredom. Meaning, I'm going to give you children, and you're not going to know if they're yours or not. You're going to be standing back going, "Mm, I don't know. I don't see any of my features in him. One was named Jezreel. That was because he was pronounced judgment at a point. Another one was No Mercy. That was the girl's name, No Mercy. For I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. The third child, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So, poor little girl, No Mercy, come here, No Mercy. Not my people, not my people, not my people, right? But yet there's going to be something greater. So you hold on to this no mercy and not my people because we're coming back on that. Listen. Chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. Like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured, bring together children of Judah and Israel under one head. This is foreshadowing when they come together under Christ because although he calls them no mercy and not my people, He will have a people for himself. He will gather together him a bride. How hard this must have been for Hosea to have a wife of whoredom, children of whoredom. I mean, it definitely doesn't fit, well, what used to be the American dream. Um, But God commands him to do this. And she, she leaves him. She leaves him. And we see this in the first three chapters of Hosea. And right in the middle of this marriage and adultery and redemption, we see God's redemptive love. For we see in chapter 2 of verse 16 of Hosea, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me husband, or call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Baal was a false god, fertility god. What was happening is the rains would come, it would bring the grains, and the people would say, Thank you, Baal. Thank you, Baal. And Baal meant husband. But the the terminology for that word husband was one of a negative sense of a master over you in a negative way. And he's saying, no longer will you call me my Baal, but my husband, for I am a good husband, Israel. I'm a good, faithful husband. Chapter 2, verse 8. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, And who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. (laughs) I gave her these things, and she took it to another God. A God that was not real. A God that did not exist. In the same way that Hosea would give his wife goods and possessions, and she thought other men were giving her those goods and possessions. Wow. What should Hosea have done? I guarantee you the popular opinion would have been he needs to leave her. He needs to get out of that. 
Don't need to be putting up with that, but no. God said, no, you're going to remain faithful. You're going to remain faithful. How convicting is this? How convicting is this? Not only that, God would allure his people back. He would woo them. In the same way he has Hosea go to Gomer, his wife, and allure her back, woo her back. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. How will she answer? She will finally love him. She will finally love him. And so God tells Hosea in the same way, chapter 3, he says, go pursue Gomer. And here's what we see. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her. Time out. He buys her back. He buys her back. For 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lathek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And so, fast-forwarding due to time here, he pursues her, he gets her back, they love one another. What changes in this marriage? And you may say, hey, Brian, you're alluding to this, but this is only dealing with Israel. No, it's not. It's dealing with the church. It's dealing with the church, and I will show you here. As we saw, no mercy. And we saw not my people. Once again, they would be his people. Hosea chapter 2, 21 through 23. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Now fast forward to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 23. We have it up on the screen. In order to make known the riches of his glory of vessels of mercy, which he has prepared before him for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. That's us. That's us. For those who are Gentiles who have been grafted into this covenant, Verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. 
You are not my people, now you are my people. First Peter 2, 9 and 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Both of these passages are speaking to the church. We are saved by works. Amen? We are saved by works. Amen? To that I say amen. We are saved by works. We are saved by the works of Jesus Christ. We are not saved by our works. How are we who are not his people now called his people? How are we who had no mercy now have mercy? Because the works of Jesus Christ. You see on this table, broken bread and the cup, This represents the works of Jesus Christ. He upheld the law because we could not uphold the law. Why didn't Jesus just come on a Friday and die on the cross and rise from the grave on Sunday and call it a good work and be done? Because he spent 33 plus years living for us. Living for us. Jesus didn't just die for us. Jesus lived for us because we're so unfaithful. We can never be faithful to God. So God himself becomes faithful for us. This is the gospel. This is the good news. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose from the grave for us to bring us into a marriage relationship with God. God loves us, church, because he loves us. (laughs) There's no other way of explaining it. Our response is to be a faithful bride. But even as we carry out our days, we know that we are unfaithful. We know that we sin. We know that we fall. We know that we struggle. We still commit adultery against God. He doesn't write us off because He's done the work, He's provided the love. That's why He loves us because of His love. And that's what we see here in Hosea. Hosea went and he received his wife. Because he loved her still, even after she did all of these things. And you may find yourself going, but God can't love me. God can't love me for what I've done. God wouldn't love you for the things you did do. That were good. He loves you because he loves you. How can I know this love? You know this love by understanding that you are a sinner separated from a holy God. 
And that the only way that you can be redeemed and receive new love is confessing your sin and trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. And you can be saved. Now, I know we have, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you because I know some of you are going to get on me today about how long I went, but I think it was necessary. So here it is. We've been to overtime games before. Just tell everybody you went to overtime today, okay? All right? Can we do that? I mean, can we just say amen to that? Golly, day. we don't mind overtime, but when it comes to, anyway. All right, so for your marriages, what do you do? Because I haven't given you a one, two, three, and four, and five. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to read through that book of Hosea. And I want you to consider your spouse. And if you are keeping a score sheet, a tally sheet, a scoreboard, throw it away. And you take the love which God has given to you, follower of Christ, and that's the love that you love your spouse with. Understand that you have made a covenant, and it may hurt. You may hurt right now. You may be angry right now. And hearing this, you may want to fight against that. And understand that is a natural tendency of the flesh to fight against this good news of the gospel which God has given to us. And there's no possible way that we could do a breakdown of every single marriage in here. But I do know that if we focus on this covenant that God has made with us, it can heal marriages that are broken. Husbands, you're obligated to love your wives. Wives, you're obligated to love your husbands, even when they are unlovely. May that be heavy on our hearts as we come to the table today. This table is for the followers of Christ. So if you're a follower of Christ, it doesn't matter if you're a member of this church or not. You come to the table today um, as God so leads you. For those who aren't followers of Jesus Christ, today you can begin following Christ by trusting in what he has done for you on the cross. You can be saved. You can enter into this covenant relationship. Some of you may have real struggles right now, and, and I, I open myself, I make myself available. You contact me if I can help in some way, if I can point you in a direction of help. But as we come to the table of communion, we are focusing on Christ. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose from the grave so that we, church, can be in this covenant relationship, which will never end. It's not based on our love. It's based on his love. So I'm going to ask God's blessings over this table. I'm going to ask our men to come forward who are serving. And then as God so leads you, that you then would come for communion. Let's pray. Father, right now I just ask that as we receive this communion, this bread dipped into this cup, Lord, may your blessings be over this table. Thank you for the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, our only hope. God, may what we have heard today as we look to the book of Hosea and we see your great love of pursuing us even when we weren't pursuing you or loving you or wanting you, that you love us. And the good news is we can love you back now and be faithful. When we fall, we can get right back up. Father, we come to the table today not based on our own perfection, but on the perfection of Christ. We ask your blessings in Jesus' name.